chapter 4, verse 1, and I'll be reading through to chapter 5, verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are under that are done under the sun. Then I saw all that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to, act, than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you with us this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Dani, uh, and I'm one of the pastors here, and this is my last week. Uh, and I've got the great privilege of bringing God's Word to you uh, today. I'm just going to move on swiftly, otherwise I might still cry, start crying as I think about the reality of leaving you guys. Um, hey, if you're new or visiting, now we're going through this series called Searching, and it's a guy that looks at life under the sun and in various ways, and, it's, and it gets to quite depressing points. He says everything is vanity, and he doesn't mean it's meaningless. 
He's saying it's difficult to discern the meaning of life. It's frustrating, it's fleeting, it's futile at times. And this morning we're going to keep going at this and we're going to look at the idea of oppression. And so yeah, keep your Bibles open. Tony's already read for us, I mean not Tony, Justin, and uh, I'm going to pray and then we're going to get stuck into it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. And um, yeah, as, as we look at this passage, it seems quite complex and tricky and all over the place. Help us to make sense of it. Uh, help us to hear your voice. And above all, help us to see and receive the hope that we have in Jesus. I pray especially, Lord, as we look at this idea of oppression, that you would be with those that maybe have really experienced this firsthand, that maybe some of these things hit very close to home, that you would comfort them, that you would give them peace, and um, yeah, that you would walk closely with them through this. And also with us, the rest of us, that um, our idea of this topic might be sharpened, might be broadened, and might line up more with what you think oppression is. And we pray this all in your mighty name, for our good and your glory ultimately. Amen. Now today we're looking at all the oppression that is done under the sun. You can see that in the first line of our passage. And it's a big passage and it seems to focus on many different areas. It's got different purposes in in different sections. And it's got different literary, literary styles as well. And so it can be a bit confusing. And so what I want to do is I want to start with the big picture of the whole and then work our way through into some of the details of the particular sections. And so the big picture is very simple, and you can probably put it uh, in these words. In the world there is oppression, but, in, but not in the house of God. In the world there is oppression, but not in the house of God. Chapter 4 is all about all these different types of oppression that we can experience in life under the sun, and we'll look at them a bit later in more detail. But in chapter 5, the focus turns to the house of God. Did you see that? Look there at chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. The preacher goes from life under the sun to life under the roof of God's house. And it seems like a complete change of topic, but it's all related. In short, the preacher tells us in this little section that there's one place where there's no oppression, and it's the house of God. Or you can put it this way, in the house of God, there is no oppressor, and there are no oppressed. And I want to show that to you, that's where I want to start, so you can see that that weird section is linked with the first bit, and then we'll get into the first bit. Uh, so what, what I want to show uh, is firstly, that in God's house, you will not be oppressed by him. God is not an oppressor in any way, shape, or form. Look how it's put in uh, Jeremiah chapter 9. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. You see, people who say that they know God and yet they oppress people and they deceive people, God says, you don't know me. Because I'm not like that. And so it's not just that God um, doesn't oppress people, and this is the the, uh, the oppressed people, but he's infuriated by people who oppress others, and he will just it justly. We see this also in Jeremiah uh, chapter 6. Look what he says. For thus says the Lord of hosts, cut down her trees, cast up a siege mount against Jerusalem. 
This is the city that must be punished. There is nothing but oppression within her. Jerusalem has this really special place in God's heart. It's where his name used to dwell. It's where his people used to dwell. But at the same time, God is happy to completely destroy it as a punishment because he's a people oppress others. And what we see here and we see throughout the rest of the Bible is God has this deep love for the poor, for the widow, for the fatherless, for the sojourner. We see that repeatedly in the Bible, and it's because these people are vulnerable to oppression. But God doesn't oppress, and he hates oppression, and he fights for the oppressed and against oppression. And so you won't be oppressed in the house of God by him. But look, it's it's quite interesting there in chapter 5, verse 1, we're instructed to watch our steps when we go to the house of God. And so why do we have to watch our steps when we go there, it's because we won't be able to oppress God. He won't oppress us, yes, but also there's no way we're going to be able to oppress Him, even if we tried. And I want to show you three quick ways in that little section of how we as people can oppress others, but it's not going to work when we go to the house of God. The preacher says, ain't no way you're doing that in God's house, okay? Follow with me here. So firstly, look there at the second half of verse 1 in chapter 5. He says this, To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. In a relationship with God, if you don't listen to Him and act accordingly, you're doing evil. No matter, no matter what you tell yourself, even if you tell yourself you're doing a good thing for God. You see, in our world, we can oppress people by not listening to them and doing whatever we want to in spite of knowing that that's not good for others. I'll give you an example. Imagine a wife tells her husband, the way you talk to me really hurts me. It's impacting me negatively when you say this and this and this. And if the husband continues to speak to his wife in the way that she's just explained to them is harmful to her, that poor wife is in an oppressive marriage. And and listen, I'm not talking about the husband who listens to his wife, who tries to love her better, who fails, who asks for forgiveness, and he tries again. No, that's fine. But some men hear, but they willfully continue in the way that they know hurts their wife. And it's oppressive, and it's abusive, and it's evil. And they might get away with it. Their wife might even wrestle with what's going on as they try and work out this weird thing that's going on between this guy that's meant to love her and that does this. And so, it doesn't really matter how the husband justifies things. It's oppression and it's wrong. Now, if a person like that comes into God's house and he doesn't listen and he just does whatever he wants to and does what he thinks good sacrifices are, The Bible says that they're a fool, and God says that they're doing evil. They can maybe oppress people in their house, but they won't oppress God in his house. Okay? Secondly, look there from verse 2 of chapter 5. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice 
with many words. You know some people, how they really slick with their words and they can manipulate others to do things just because they keep talking and keep talking and say things in different ways and it sounds so complex and clever and convincing. And if you're not switched on to people like that, you can be overcome by their many manipulative words. But that doesn't happen in God's house. Because he is in heaven and we're on earth. You see, he's the, he's the ruling God who's sovereign over everything and he cannot be changed by many words. Don't think that an oppressor who uses many words can change God's sovereign plans and purposes and even his own character. I mean, what does Jesus say? Even Jesus says, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Some people think if you just talk a lot, you can, you can change God, like we might get away with doing with people. But that doesn't happen in God's house. You know what happens when people try to oppress God with their many words and try and twist his arm and get him to do something for them? Nothing happens. He's not changed at all. Have you, have you ever had a dream? I often get these on a Saturday night just before I preach, and I'm frantically busy. You know, there's sermon notes going everywhere, and I haven't got a sermon to preach, and I'm freaking out, and I'm stressed and whatnot, and then I wake up, and I realize, actually, I do have a sermon, and, and, and nothing's come of that dream. Have you have, ever had dreams like that? And in the same way, a fool with their many words will frantically be busy speaking and speaking and speaking, to no avail. It'll have no impact on God. The, the Bible here says you're off with the fairies if you think all your empty phrases and many words can oppress God. Maybe you'll get away with it in your house, but not in God's house. Now look at the third and last way people oppress others, but it won't work with God. Look there from verse four, 4 of chapter 5. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? People can oppress others by making promises, but not keeping them. For example, when I grew up in South Africa, I remember one of the political parties, the ANC, they would go around to all these uh, poor and vulnerable, struggling communities just before election time, and they would make all these wonderful promises to them, things that might sound very busy, uh, basic to you, but they would promise to build them houses, brick houses, not made out of tin, houses with electricity, houses with running water, uh, and they would, they would promise all of these things to them. And so these poor and vulnerable people would vote for the ANC. And over the next four years, nothing would come of those promises. And would you believe it? Next time when it comes around, you think, ah, well, they're going to have learned their lesson. And the same thing would happen over and over again. And so people can make promises to help other people out of difficult situations and not keep those promises intentionally, even though it's well within their power to do it. It's oppression. Now, you can try that with God, and it won't work. Maybe you'll fool others, you know, when you say, uh, hey, I'm going to be committed to this community. Hey, I, I want to start getting involved. I want to help out. I want to contribute. Oh, I'll give to this, or, or I'll, I'll do that. 
If you're intentionally making promises that you know you won't keep, you're sinning. Often people do it because they want to look good in front of people, but they've got no intention to do it. And don't try and cover it up. That's what this person tries to do here. I don't know if you know this. I only just found this out this this week. In the Old Testament, there's actually um, a law that someone can be forgiven for doing something that they didn't know was, was sin. And so you can read about that in Numbers 15. And so what you can do is when you do something wrong and you didn't know it was a law, that kind of thing comes into place. And you say, look, I, I didn't know about it. I'm sorry. Like, and so uh, it's, it's, it's unintentional. And what it says here is don't make promises. When, and when someone asks you about the, those promises, you say, oh, I didn't know. Was, was that what I said? Was that what you meant when you asked me that? Oh, man, I'm so sorry. We, we've misunderstood each other. Don't do that. That's what verse 6 is all about, pretending that your promises were a mistake when really you just lied straight off the bat from the start. God knows about this kind of sin, and it's, it angries him, and, and, and he will judge it. So the point of Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7 is that there is no oppression in the house of God, unlike in the world. He doesn't oppress us, and we cannot oppress him. And we know that later, when Jesus arrived, fast forward a number of years, a lot of years, Jesus comes and he actually replaces God's house. When he rocks up on the scene, he says to the people, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And so when Jesus dies on the cross and the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom, the presence of God no longer dwells there. And as he is risen three days later, all the blessings and the promises and all the goodness and presence of God that we found in his house in the past is now found in Jesus. Jesus is now the one in whom we can experience oppression-free lives. And, and, and what I want to show you is that we can be freed from the oppression we experience in this life as we put ourselves not in God's house, but in His Son. Okay? So that's what I want to do. I want to show you this by working through Ecclesiastes 4. So we started at the bottom. We're going back to the top. And we're going to go through a bit more detail. So follow along with me. Chapter 4 now. So look there in verses 1 to 4. We see, we're looking now again at the oppression under the sun. We see the the powerful oppressing the powerless. Look there at verse 1 again of chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. We all know, and I hope you do, about the Nazi regime, Regime. We know about apartheid in South Africa. We know of communism in countries like China. We know of militant extremism who oppress people. People with power who use their power not to build people up, but to put them down and to keep them down. That's what the Egyptians did with the Israelites. The powerless are stuck. And there's no way to come, there's no one even to comfort them. And it's horrible. And in our day and age, you can actually find out about this more and more on the internet. And it gets to points when you watch this on Facebook or whatever, and the algorithms bring these things up more and more to you, that you almost get sick in the stomach. And when you see enough of it, you will say, like the preacher, did you notice what he says? That it's better to be dead. It's 
so that you can't actually see it. And he goes even further. He says, those who have not yet even been born have it better because they've never seen any of the evil and the oppression that is done under the sun. That's life under the sun in this world. Not obviously for everyone, but for some. But what about life under the Son of God? Life under Jesus. I mean, he's the most powerful person that's ever walked the planet. How does he use his power? I mean, can I trust him with all of this power that he's got? Is he going to oppress me? Is he going to take advantage of me? And you just have to have a look at Jesus using his power. I love that picture of of him walking into a city and there's a a widow crying whose one and only son has just died and she is very vulnerable. And his heart goes out to her and he raises her son so that he can care for her. You just have to look at Jesus when at the amount of people that he's healed from debilitating diseases and he kind of set them free to start new lives. Or what about when he was on the cross suffering oppression for us? This is how Isaiah puts it. He says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He did not fight back, even though he had so much power. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the, genera- for the transgression of my people. You see, Jesus let himself be oppressed by the powers of the day uh, to the point of death so that he can pay for the transgressions of God's people. Jesus doesn't use his power to oppress us, but to set us free from the thing that we are most oppressed by and that we are most powerless against, which is sin. You see, sin rules over us. It makes us do things that we don't even want to do. And, and we keep saying to sin, no, that's enough, it's over, I'm going to change my life. <laughs> but it doesn't listen. It keeps deceiving us, lying to us, and so we keep doing the things that's bad for us and others. And so sin kind of just keeps us under its thumb. This leaves us with dreadful consequences, not just in this life as relationships are broken and hurt is done, but consequences that we need to face before a sinless God one day. But Jesus uses his power and his sinless life to to pay for our eternal consequences so that we might be set free from the grip of sin and judgment. And so life under the Son, Jesus, is guaranteed to be a life of freedom. People in this life will still abuse their power and, and look to oppress and manipulate us But Jesus never will. He will only use his power for your good. That's the first section in chapter 4. How good is Jesus? Let's look at the next section from verses 4 to 6. From verse 4 there, look with me. Then I saw that all toil and all skill uh, in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. You see, sometimes people... Uh, are oppressed by their own desires. So we've looked at the powerful over the powerless, and now we're looking at our own desires oppressing us. In our passage, a desire is envy. A person can be envious of another person's house, or their car, or their wife, or their job, or whatever, and it can shape all of their work, all of their toil, all of their driving and striving. 
I'll give you an example. When we, um, when we lived in South Africa, we really were not wealth, wealthy at all. I mean, there were many people in South Africa that were certainly poor, and we weren't one of them. But we were in this middle class, but low middle class. And so it meant that I never had any expensive clothes, none of the branded stuff that, I, that my friends were wearing that I wanted, none of the Nike shoes, none of the good rugby boots that I wanted. It was all just kind of no-name stuff that didn't last very long, that no one knew of, and it was a bit embarrassing. And so I envied what my mates had, and I also envied their parents' money. And so one day when my dad whinged again about how expensive his accountant is, and that they don't really seem to do much, I just latched onto that idea. (gasps) Someone that gets a lot of money and that doesn't do that much, that sounds good to me. And just imagine, because they don't do that much, you can actually get a lot done in one day or one week or one year, which means more money. And so I set my heart on becoming an accountant as soon as I can. In school, I chose accountancy, accountancy, whatever it was. Uh, What was it called again in Afrikaans? Anyway, I choose accountancy. I chose maths, you know, so I'm good with numbers. And I did a bit of economics too. And I worked very hard in those subjects. I was often top of the class. People used to come to me so that I can show them what to do. And I did that because they, those subjects weren't going to get me to uni and they were going to make me rich so that I can buy the nice things that I saw my friends with. Now you tell me, was my decision to become an accountant made as a free young man with no other powerful influences shaping me? No. No way. I was oppressed by my envy of what others had. I was oppressed by my desire to be wealthy. I was oppressed by this picture of my dad's accountant who drives a nice car, who lives in a posh suburb, and who doesn't do that much. (laughs) She said, can you see how I was oppressed by my desires, how it shaped everything in my life going forward? If we desire, for example, to always please people, we'll be be oppressed by people's acceptance of us. If we desire power, we'll be oppressed and taken captive by power itself and authority. Whatever we live for or seek that's not God will take us captive and oppress us. That's the reality. That's what we see in this passage. And you might say to the preacher, Look, it's really simple, mate. Um, All you've got to do is don't work to satisfy all your desires. Just don't work at all. Stop toiling and striving to fulfill your desires. But look at what he says there in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Not working will eat you up from the inside. God made you to work and to strive. And so not doing it, as the NIV says, will ruin you. So the preacher's advice is to say, look, work hard enough so you've got something in your hand to show people and also to live off. But also you want to not work so much that you have no peace and quiet, that your hands are so full from all your stuff that there's no peace and quiet. But friends, only Jesus can give you a change of desires And a picture of a better life that will lead to the peace and the quiet that we're after in all of our striving. Jesus makes us completely right before God so that we are adopted into his family. And we become his treasured possession. 
you and me, the treasured possession of the God of the universe. Let that sink in. And if it does, you won't worry what anyone thinks of you. You won't worry what people say of you. You're fully accepted and spoken well of by the most powerful and important person in the world and really the only one that matters. So don't let your worldly status control you, but your new status as one of God's heirs. Don't let riches control you. For goodness sake, you're going to inherit everything. Paul even says in places to the Corinthians, everything is yours already. Not only does Jesus give you this kind of new reality to live by, but he also changes our desires to be good and not oppressive. And so life under Jesus the Son will free you from being controlled and impressed by your own desires and deceitful realities that are not actually true. The next part of life that can oppress us, next section, is found in verses 7 to 12, and it's this one, loneliness. Do you feel like maybe this passage is just pushing your idea of what oppression is? When we were working through this in our growth group, we all thought the first section were about oppression, and maybe they still think that. But God is pushing us. Just like Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I tell you, it's pushing us. Hopefully you see that. So loneliness can oppress us. Look there from verse 7 of chapter 4. Again, I saw vanity or frustration under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. You know, sometimes for some people... Life can get the better of them simply because they're alone. And I think we've all experienced this to some degree. Uh, when COVID hit and there were lots of lockdowns and isolation, um, uh, there's, there's a reason they called it the loneliness pandemic. And let's be honest, for some people it was even more hard than for others. Maybe someone's spouse had passed away and their children had kind of disowned them. Maybe... They, they are a single child whose parents had already passed away. Maybe they immigrated when they were young and they just know no extended family. They've never been married or had any kids. You see, sometimes people, through no fault of their own or, or decision of their own, they end up all alone and oppressed by loneliness in life. And the remedy for people who are impressed, uh, uh, oppressed by loneliness, according to the preacher, is to pursue riches, as we see there in the second half of verse 8. You see, when you're rich, when you've got money, you can surround yourself with possessions and people. And so you're not alone. You can have all the latest stuff and lots of possessions and things so that when you go in your house, you're surrounded by things. You're not alone. And also you get all these friends because they want to come and share with you. Hey, let's have another party. You know that movie, is it The Great Gatsby? And he has these amazing parties every night and then and then the film uh, kind of starts the next morning and he's just dead set alone in this huge building. And it's just nasty. Life is a bit like that. Uh, and so even if you pursue uh, a, a change in your life through money, it just doesn't work. Riches are so uh, important in the remedy of loneliness in our world uh, to the point where there's no wealth that can ever satisfy them. They would just keep working and toiling and striving for more and more. 
But the preacher says, hey, are you never going to stop and just ask yourself, who am I toiling and striving for? Who's going who's gonna to get all this money that I'm pursuing? Who's going to get all my wealth that I'm chasing after? And, and I'm chasing after it so hard that I'm actually forsaking just enjoying life. Who's going to benefit from this really in the end? It's a good question to a difficult, uh, to a difficult situation. How else do you live a happy life in loneliness? Well, the answer is Jesus. Look what he says here in John 14. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. You see, life under Jesus will mean that you're never alone. As you come under Jesus' rule by loving him and obeying him, God the Father will love you and Him and the Son together will come and make their home within you. They will dwell within you by the the Spirit. And so as a Christian, you're never alone. I listened to a podcast recently about the time last year, I think it was in August, when the, the United States troops were withdrawn from Afghanistan. And you, you probably remember the nasty images of all of that. But as soon as they withdrew, some of the troops were still in Afghanistan. The Taliban just started taking over the country again. And these Muslim extremists chased down Christians ruthlessly to destroy them. And there's this one guy on the podcast who survived. who tells his story of how he was separated from his family. And uh, when they got him, they put him in solitary confinement. In a space he said was about a meter by a meter. So he couldn't lie down and sleep. He would get five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night for a quick toilet break, and that was it. And solitary confinement is one of the worst things. One of the it's the it's kind of the pinnacle of the oppression of loneliness. We're not designed to be alone. And so here's this guy in solitary confinement, and he just speaks positively about it. He said, Man, I I I was with Jesus. I was, I was just reminding over and over myself as I was meditating on the scriptures and reciting it, how much he loves me, what my standing is before God, where I'm going. And then I burst out into praises and I was singing and I was praying to him who was with me. And so he was never alone. That's what life under Jesus is like. But there's even more, actually. Have a look here. Uh, earlier in John chapter 14, Jesus says this, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? You see, Jesus doesn't simply come and make his home within us. He also makes us part of God's home by preparing a place for us on the cross. But notice there are many rooms in the Father's house. And so when you live under Jesus, you're brought into God's family. And you're not alone. You gain brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. It's beautiful. You know, it's under Jesus that the Apostle Paul becomes a father to Timothy and Timothy becomes his son. It's under the feet of Jesus at the cross where Jesus says to his mother, uh, actually he says to the Apostle John first, this is your mother as he points to his own mother. And then he talks to his mother Mary and he says this, is my brother John, and he is now becoming your son. You see, it's, in, it's life under Jesus, when we love and obey him, that makes us family. We are to be the physical representation of Jesus to one another, so that we're never oppressed by loneliness. That's so good. I'm going to miss that with you guys. 
as I was thinking about this at Golden Ages the other day. So many of you guys have become like family to us. The last type of oppression we experience in life under the sun after loneliness, I think, is time. Uh, It's found there in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 13 to 16. And this is, look, by the way, this whole chapter is not an exhaustive list. Maybe you're visiting here, you're not a believer, and you're saying that I've experienced more than that. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's enough for us to be aware of the oppression that's going on under the sun and wanting to live a life under Jesus, the Son of God, that is free of oppression. But have a look there with me from verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end of all the people, all of whom he had led. And yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The oppression we get here, I think, is the oppression of time. Now, it's a bit similar to what we, what we heard from last week from Tony, but it's particularly applied to rulers. And there's some tricky translation stuff that's going on in this passage. And so actually, as we were reading at our growth group, all the translations are quite different and it can be a bit confusing. But let me paint you a picture, okay? So the preacher looks at an old king that he describes as foolish because he no longer takes advice. But this king has not always been like this. He was born in a poor family. He, he even ended up in prison. Gee, talk about low of the low. But somewhere along the way, he grew in wisdom and he started taking advice from the right people. Somehow, as he lived a life of always being humble and, and being open to what others had to say, he ends up as the king. Gee, what a story, from prison to the throne. And he rules for many years and over many people. And at the end of his time as the ruler, uh, as time has passed, this king stops taking advice. And he only does what he wants to do, what he thinks is best. And the preacher looks over all the people that this king has ruled over, and he states the sad reality that none of the descendants of these people that he's looking over will rejoice in the old foolish king. Why? Because his legacy has been ruined. He no longer takes advice. I mean, there's a little bit of hope because there's another poor and wise youth in the crowd that'll stand in the old foolish king's place. But you see, what this is teaching is that time changes us. We vote a leader into position and four years later, they're a different, a different person for better or for worse. That's, that's simple life under the sun. We're all changed by time as people on this planet. None of us are the same people we were three years ago. And, and we will be different again in another three years' time. It's only God that can say, I am who I am. When we say, I am who I am, by the time I finish that little line, I'm no longer the person I was when I started saying that line. I'm three seconds older. Okay, so at its heart, we just are changed by time. Time oppresses us, and it doesn't leave us as we are. And so what the oppression of time on our rulers make us yearn for is a ruler who stands outside of time, a king who never changes, a king who is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow, a king who will rule well over us for all of his life, not just some of it. Wouldn't that be great? 
Friends, that king is Jesus. The question is, is he your king? Have you come under his good and powerful rule? Because he alone uses his power for your good. He alone sets us free from our sin. He alone sets us free from our oppressive desires. He alone sets us free from deceitful realities of amazing accountants. He alone will always be with us and never forsake us. So we're never alone. He alone will never oppress you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your goodness. We are blown away yeah, at how good you are, at how you use your power, at how you bring us into your family, and how you free us from the oppression of our desires and deceitful realities, at how good you rule us. We are free in your grip of grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for revealing it to us. And Lord, as we go through life uh, that's nothing like what you are like, would you comfort us? Would you lead us? May we continue to take refuge in you, Lord. And Lord, we want to pray this morning as well, because one of the things that is so obvious is that you have a heart for the poor, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner. You hate oppression. And we all know the nasty things that's happened in your church for so long. Would you please forgive those people, Lord? Many of them are wolves in sheep clothing who oppress your people, who take advantage of them, who do things for their own good and not for your glory. They certainly don't line up with your will and your heart and what we see in the Bible. Would you continue to purify your church? May there be a love and a unity and a care for all people as people submit themselves under the rule of Jesus. Be with us that our idea of oppression might continue to deepen and broaden and that we would live lives in light of your word and um, just enjoy the amazing freedom that we have in you, Jesus. And we pray this all in your mighty name. Amen.